Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! <laughs> Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with people who know Vegas. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas. We've got to be honest, these are difficult days for Las Vegas. Don't get me wrong, Vegas will be back. But these days, live entertainment, sports, festivals, anything that draws big crowds are on hold. And with tough times comes finger pointing. Today, we're going to spend the first half hour of the show discussing this with your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com. Scott has been attacked in the press for merely chronicling what's happening. And he's going to tell us about it and his thoughts on what's coming up in the years ahead. In the second half hour, Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports Rock and Tours. Today you'll meet Bill White, former star first baseman for the Giants, Cardinals, and Phillies, who also served as president of the National League and as a broadcaster for the New York Yankees. But now, let's take a look around town with a guy that knows what's happening behind the scenes. Well, it's our pleasure to have our good friend Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com, the authority for Vegas news, and always the first place to go. And it was great to have you on, and we decided to do the whole show with him today. Scott, I know you're like I am. You love Vegas, but at the same time, you're, pre- you're pretty honest about all this stuff, too. It's starting to look worse and worse. Do you get that feeling there? I mean, it's, it just it seems like when I say worse and worse, I really mean I think it might be a while before this thing actually recovers. Yeah, I, I think no matter how it goes and what the timeline is, it's going to take uh, quite a bit of time to recover if Vegas recovers. And by recover, I mean like back to the levels that we've seen. Uh, there was some flattening of visitation even before the COVID for probably two years. Uh, so it's very complicated because this is throwing a huge wrench into the works, of course. But there were already some issues in place uh, related to increased competition around the country, which was was affecting Vegas. Uh, Vegas tried to pivot into being more about entertainment uh, than gambling, and right at the moment when there could be no entertainment. So uh, it's just a combination of a lot of awful things. Uh, The fact that Vegas is not very diversified in its economy is not helping. Uh, There are so many jobs and businesses that are really based around tourism, and it is a service economy, so you've got layers of hurt and it just keeps getting worse and worse. The entertainment world, you know, this uh, Vegas was billed as the entertainment capital of the world. I think you've said it on your show a lot of times, too. And it's just, it's devastating to see these shows closed down for month after month after month. There's no real plan, no real timeline. Uh, Some of the shows have thrown up possible solutions uh, related to social distancing, but it's not even really on the radar yet. And it's, you know, um, just a day or two ago, Larev, uh, announced that they will not be reopening again. So there's a lot of news like that. Cirque du Soleil filed bankruptcy. It's just a mess on so many levels. But yeah, it's going to take some time economically. It's just it's tough to watch. You know, the casinos can't really exist at 50% capacity. Restaurants can't exist at 50% capacity. So nobody knows what's going to change or when. But you're absolutely right that it's going to take a while to to recover. 
you know, you call it the gut punch of the day, and it really feels like that. I feel like a boxer that can't fight back, and just every day I'm taking a hit on this. And part of it is so much was put to the new convention center. Anybody knew, I mean, expanded convention center, and that was going to be the one thing that kind of got us out of the doldrums. And it's just a really difficult time because nobody's going on conventions anywhere right now. Yep, it was kind of a two-pronged attack uh, from what I could see, and, and it was conventions and sports uh, were supposed to be this, this kind of miraculous salvation of Vegas, and that includes, of course, the new uh, Raiders Stadium, huge deal for Vegas, um, and the MSG Sphere, which was supposed to be this amazing high-tech theater, and as you said, the Las Vegas Convention Center, we've got this fancy Elon Musk tunnel transportation system, uh, and the convention center itself was was supposed to be accommodating these conventions that had, had bypassed Vegas. Yeah, all that stuff is really just dead in the water. Like it is, it is absolutely baffling. Uh, happily, a lot of these projects have continued even during the crisis. So that's the good news. The stadium uh, has has reached. Uh, I think they call it substantial completion. So that's almost completely done. Uh, projects like Resorts World have moved forward. The Convention Center project has moved forward. Circa Downtown has moved forward. So there's quite a few projects that are happening. But, yeah, conventions are really I, – I don't know if uh, people kind of sort of in the world realize the importance of conventions in Las Vegas, but Vegas doesn't work without conventions. Weekends, uh, obviously, there's a certain built-in audience driving uh, folks from California and visitors from across the country and internationally. But conventions are the economic backbone of Vegas because midweek – you need conventions. You need people with these uh, expense accounts. You need them to fill the rooms, and you need them to fill the casino, hopefully. They're not the biggest gamblers in the world, but they do tend to eat and drink a lot. Uh, so conventions are an absolute necessity in, in Vegas, and there's just been no movement on that at all. A lot of the biggest uh, conventions obviously canceled uh, for early 2020, and now they're starting to cancel in late 2020, and several have canceled in early 2021. So, again... Not not the most upbeat news, but it certainly is interesting uh, because I don't know of anyone who could have anticipated this level of just WTF every day. Every day, yeah. there's some new thing that makes it look. It, it often makes it look insurmountable. Uh, people are, you know, these companies are trying to figure out ways to make money without doing their core business, which is it's interesting, but uh, it's just not sustainable. Well, and people are starting to get touchy, and I want to focus on one thing. As we tell everybody every time we're on, you know what's going on in Vegas. And part of the way you find this out is through people telling you inside information and so forth, like every good journalist has. And one of the larger hotels, the Sahara, got a little irritated and they threatened to sue you for saying that there was a rumor that the facility was going to close. Now, aside from the fact that I find that offensive just strictly from a free speech point of view, it really is kind of tough. I mean, these people are getting edgy, right? Because I guess they don't know what to do. So, you know, when you don't know what to do, you start looking for scapegoats. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it was more than a threat. Uh, they they uh, reached out to me about this rumor and said it was untrue, asked me to do a retraction, which I did, but apparently they didn't care for it. Uh, so they did file a lawsuit. So I am being sued. My latest, the litigant, uh, is a new thing. Um, I don't take it lightly, but as you said, this is a symptom of a problem uh, that I think comes from a place of uh, confusion and desperation. Uh, This place has struggled for quite some time. I think they feel like maybe I was piling on or wishing them ill, which I was not. 
Uh, I was just sharing an industry rumor. Uh, they said that it had no merit. I, you know, they have every right to say what they say, but a lawsuit seemed a little bit extreme in terms of a response. I think part of this is really they, uh, they apparently, they claim to have had people calling asking if they should cancel their trips. That obviously has an impact on their business. They also saw the reaction of employees. Uh, there were, were many, uh, apparently, employees concerned that they would be losing their jobs. You know, I, I couched this thing in, in terms of it being a rumor as much as I could. I did as many disclaimers in this article as I could. Um, but that uh, didn't really satisfy them, and I don't think legally that's a way of uh, kind of p- protecting myself. But we'll see how it goes. Uh, there are pretty strong laws in Las Vegas for uh, journalism and journalists uh, to, to protect themselves from kind of bigger, better financed enterprises uh, kind of trying to squelch free speech. You know, you, you mentioned the First Amendment. I actually got some legal advice, and the gentleman said something I thought was just brilliant. He said, the First Amendment protects your right to be a shitty journalist. And so I'm... <laughs> I'm embracing that philosophy because even if I'm not very good at what I do, uh, there's a lot of varying opinions about that. But in, in whatever context you think, good journalism, bad journalism, even if you don't think it's journalism at all, I think uh, our system is based on a freedom of expression, the freedom to say what you're thinking, to have opinions, and I, I think uh, it'll go pretty well. You'll hear more from Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com in just a moment. Remember, you can find Scott all over social media. Just search for Vital Vegas. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Manchin. Hi, I'm Michelle Johnson, and you're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. To re-emerge stronger and safer than ever, ask yourself these crucial questions. Should all restaurants, retailers, and venues have new safety and sanitation procedures in place? As a business owner, how can you assure your valued guests that proper protocols are being followed? How can you give your guests confidence knowing that you've prioritized their health and safety? Introducing VirusSafe Pro, a revolutionary mobile technology software that provides checklists, reminders, and confirmations to help your team perform health and safety measures right on schedule. It allows you to close the information gap in the workplace by giving your employees a dedicated source of credible instructions in a timely manner, right from their mobile devices. Validate compliance with health and wellness standards, provide regular safety and health messaging, and confirm that approved protocols have been performed all in real time and an easy to read dashboard. Tracking and verifying health and safety procedures in your business has never been more important. To learn more about how VirusSafe Pro can help you reopen, visit VirusSafePro.com. Have you been diagnosed with lung cancer or mesothelioma? Did you spend your life working hard in a shipyard or in the railroad industry? Were you a pipe fitter in the oil or gas industry? Or maybe you worked in construction or you're a proud Navy veteran. If you worked in any of these industries, it's a high likelihood you worked around or near asbestos in your lifetime. And if you've been diagnosed with lung cancer or mesothelioma, you may be entitled to significant compensation. Our attorneys have been fighting hard for years to win our customers the compensation they're entitled to for their pain and suffering. So if you've been diagnosed with lung cancer or mesothelioma, call right now for help. This commercial is paid for by Airtime Media, and I'm a non-attorney spokesperson. 800-814-5077. 800-814-5077. 
Again, that's 800-814-5077. Now, let's return to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Let's get back to our conversation with your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com. Radio hosts and newspaper columnists have been guessing at things and have been talking to people and have inside information for as long as I can remember. So this is nothing new. People hear about these things all the time. And quite frankly, most of the time, you're right on the money. Yeah, I mean, this this was not a baseless rumor. Uh, this was a rumor from a source. And so if the case is that I fabricated something or that if I had it out for them, I, I think that's ridiculous. Uh, but even if you have an opinion that is wrong or your conjecture is wrong or your source is wrong, that's not the, it's not subject to litigation. So I think this goes back to what you're talking about. During an uncertain time, uh, I absolutely think there's the potential they will position this as bad publicity, hurt our business. Whether they close or not, um, they are suffering because they were suffering before COVID and now it's obviously, it's an extreme situation. Uh, I have a lot more rumors that I haven't shared, so in a way they've already won. Uh, I'm willing to do a lot. You know, I'm willing to apologize to the employees. I'm willing, you know, whatever hoops they want me to jump through. I don't want to have be in a fight with Sahara. I certainly still want to be able to go to Sahara because I like the place. Uh, but last night I discovered I was 86th uh, in the business. They call it being evacuated uh, or evicted or something. I don't know. They, they evicted me, which is kind of a gaming term for being asked to go, and you're not welcome back. So that, I was bummed about that more than the lawsuit because I like it there. They're not the only ones that are struggling. I mean, the Palms is in deep trouble. And the Palms, I can remember the days back when the Maloofs owned it, when that was a happening place. And, you know, you've been talking for a long time, well before COVID came around, that financially it didn't all add up. And, boy, it's, this has just killed them. Yeah, Palms is an interesting case because uh, I think a lot of these companies that kind of made bad decisions are going to use the crisis for cover. Um, What I mean by that is they are going to make business decisions, whether it's a, oh, I don't know, bankruptcy or other legal steps that they can take to protect protect their assets. They're going to say it was a COVID crisis, which is not untrue. But in a situation like Palms, say, they have invested far more than they could ever recoup. They had a disaster with their nightclub uh, chaos. And this was looking like it was going to go south no matter what happened. Uh, It remains closed. The best information I have is it will not uh, reopen again under this ownership. That is, uh, how do I cover myself now? That's a rumor. (laughs) It's unconfirmed. uh, It's unsubstantiated. And I have not reached out for comment from them. Uh, But that is the latest I've heard, and it's it's a tricky situation. Rio, right across the street, is also closed. Tough locations, tough business, you know, really challenging business for for uh, Palms prior to COVID, and now it's hard to know what they're going to do, but they spent so much money on this place. You know, there are actually a couple of other casinos that are still closed, uh, including Plant Hollywood, Cromwell. Um, you know, some of these places don't really have, you know, Park, uh, MGM, these places have not opened yet. You've seen kind of these tentative dates floated, but the, the business is not there. Palms, to me, seems the most likely candidate for a sale. Uh, I believe uh, the company that owns its station, Casinos, has already uh, entered into agreements to sell a couple of other places, even though they haven't announced that. Allegedly, 
Well, are there any other hotels around town that are a concern, you know, in terms of some of these what we call local hotels or some of the places that people enjoy that aren't right on the strip or right in the middle of downtown? Well, the interesting part is those local casinos are actually doing pretty well. Uh, They're still abiding by the social distancing and the capacity rules, but locals are ready to go back. It's really the tourist spots that are are, uh, having trouble because of the travel restrictions. Uh, International, absolutely just evaporated. Conventions evaporated. Uh, One of the examples I bring up is downtown because downtown was not really, you know, they were not reliant on convention business. They were not really reliant on uh, Asian travel, say, or, or international travel. So downtown seems to be doing okay. The locals' places are doing okay. Uh, there are a few kind of quirky ones that have not reopened yet, like Texas Station and Fiesta Henderson and so another Fiesta. Like, these places are kind of one-offs. Also under the Station Casino umbrella, couple of those I think have sold. One I think is going to be uh, purchased by the folks that own the Dotties uh, casino chain. But it, it's just a wild time because nobody ever imagined uh, casinos closing even during the first shutdown, and they never imagined once they could reopen that they would stay closed. Uh, I don't think any are going away permanently. I think some ownership changes might be happening, but I don't think there's anybody who's just going to you know close up shop and put a you know board up the windows. Like You're never going to see that at Palms or Rio, I don't think. Uh, unless they plan to knock them down. Some of these places are getting uh, a little long in the tooth, maybe not Palms, but certainly Rio has been discussed with potential demolition. Uh, Tropicana, people have talked about that. I, I heard a little chatter about Luxor. Uh, it's old, high maintenance, uh, and a little too themed. So unsubstantiated rumor, of course, but those are the ones that are fun to me. So Wow. What about restaurants? Have we seen any that are some great ones that are gone? How are they doing? Uh, quite a few have opened their cafes or maybe one other restaurant, but a lot still have a few closed. Um, usually that's based along uh, whether a place is union or not. That seems to be the trend. Is that a union uh, venue? Uh, they're too expensive to operate at 50% capacity, so they, they've just kept them closed. Uh, there have been some kind of high-profile places that it, you just don't know if they're coming back. Uh, they, they, they're still closed. It's sad because... Uh, as rather as the show equivalent, like these shows have just always been in Vegas. They've been uh, prominent, maybe not financially successful, uh, but they are kind of a signature thing, and uh, that can happen with restaurants too. What are you hoping for? Well, I mean, besides the obvious, but would you like to see maybe by the end of the year, do you think, are they talking about a turnaround at all there? I mean, obviously nothing's going to really be happening until this virus is handled, and who knows, but is that kind of what you're hearing around town that they're looking for towards the end of the year? Well, there's a lot of optimism and a lot of pessimism. Uh, the other day I heard that there was some thought that nightclubs might try to open by New Year's Eve. Uh, so that doesn't seem that far away, but that also, I think it's very suspect because, as we've seen, best laid plans. Uh, a lot of these hotel reopenings have just been pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. We need to get to a point where we can have our bars back. Uh, that's really hurting the casino business and the tavern business. We, we need to have our video poker bars um, back open. I think that'll be happening in the next few weeks. Uh, but the show component, the music festival component, the, the it, these big gatherings are just, they're in a lot of trouble. Uh, I've heard some numbers floated for next year. Um, that Allegiant Stadium won't even have events into the middle of next year. Uh, I heard July 4th. Then I heard uh, that music festivals and big events like that, nothing in 2021. I, I was honestly shocked by that because I thought 
uh, you know, EDC rescheduled. Some of these bigger uh, music festivals were rescheduling. I'm like, they must know something. But it remains to be seen. I, I think it's optimistic to think that Vegas will be, will be you know, roaring back uh, by the end of the year. And it's, it, it's tough. Thanks, Scott. Remember to visit VitalVegas.com every day and follow Scott on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Take it from me. If you want to know what's really happening in Las Vegas, you need to follow Vital Vegas. Remember, all of our shows are archived on our website, VegasNeverSleeps.com. You can also listen on SoundCloud, iTunes, and more. Coming up, Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports Rockin' Tours. Today's topic is the story of a baseball pioneer, the great Bill White. White's background is not only as a player, but also as a league executive and a broadcaster as well. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Vegas, here we go! They were there when history was made. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Inside the 20. Touchdown! A raconteur is a storyteller. Welcome to the Sports Tour. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! The sports raconteurs dust off the great American art of storytelling. From the players, coaches, media, the people who were there. Smith corks one in the right down the line. It may go. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. It's a home run. Go crazy. Now, here's Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Sports Rockin' Tours, a show that presents the observations, recollections, and memories of a select group of storytellers who represent the past half century or so of American sports. The people who were actively involved with or bore witness to those events that shaped our childhoods, kept us engaged, and kept us coming back for more. Today, you'll meet someone who excelled on the field, in the boardroom, and in the broadcast booth. With us is Bill White, the all-star first baseman for many years with the Giants, the Cardinals, and the Phillies. And then it was a great broadcaster with the New York Yankees. Also, you might remember him as president of the National League. He wrote an incredible book called Uppity, My Untold Story About the Games People Play. Bill, uh, you had an incredible life. Talk about what it was like in the Carolina League with the Giants. You, were, I believe, were only the second black American to ever play in that league. I was the only player there that year. I was the second. I think the year before they they had a kid uh, from uh, from down there, and in, in, I think in Carolina, who played. And then I came down the next year. I didn't want to go there, but uh, we uh, so we ended up in Danville, Virginia. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy, but I took it out on the baseball. It was something. It was a new experience for me. Uh, I was not aware of what was going on in Virginia when I went there, but uh, that's where the Giants sent me. You're college educated, which a lot of ball players at the time went directly into the minor leagues. So that had to be a kind of a culture shock, I would imagine, to go down into the well, the outskirts of the South. Well, it was the South, <laughs> and it was it was pretty much a shock. Uh, the shock was, uh, I think, going to spring training one year, and I 
uh, had to change uh, trains in, in Cincinnati and being relegated to a, a, a separate uh, uh, coach there. That, that was the first shock in going through, uh, going to spring training that year. That, that, that was quite a bit of a shock. The Giants signed me, took me out to Phoenix with the big club. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was great because I uh, met Willie Mays out there, Hank Aaron out there, Ruben Gomez, I think, was there. A lot of guys were there. Uh, we all stayed in the same uh, hotel, and this is uh, back in 1950s. Uh, I think I signed in 1953 or so. And uh, part of my contract uh, was, was to go with the farm team out in uh, in Phoenix, which I did, and Leo DeRocher was the manager then, and it was a good experience. Obviously, I found out I wasn't ready for the big leagues. (laughs) So uh, then uh, they sent me, obviously, to Florida for spring training, and uh, I remember in Cincinnati I had to go to a separate uh, car, but we got through spring training down there and played the first year in Danville, Virginia. So it was was a different experience for a kid. I think, uh, let's see, I was about... uh, 18, 19 years old then. But that, I mean, that's something you hadn't dealt with before. It has to be almost kind of a slap in the face. Like, what is going on here, I would think? Uh, it wasn't uh, It wasn't easy because, yeah, I've mentioned being raised in Ohio, going to college in Ohio, going to high school in Ohio, in the integrated uh, facilities there. No, it wasn't, it, was, it wasn't much of a shock because basically, I mentioned I was born in Florida. Yeah. And I left there when I was three years old. My, my grandmother was smart enough to get us the hell out of there. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> we went up to uh, Warren, Ohio, and and her sons obviously were getting uh, into the twenties, and they all worked in the steel mills there. So it was a great move by my grandmother to get us out of there and moves uh, and moves to Ohio, uh, where they got uh, decent employment Absolutely. and uh, a better education for well, me. Well, that's great. And then you're with the Giants organization. You get to the Cardinals. And now the Cardinals, as teams went at that time, they were fairly progressive, right? And they were building this championship team. I I always remember that book, 1964, October 1964 by Halberstam. And kind of what the Cardinals were doing was a little different, certainly different than the Yankees team they played in the World Series that year. Well, I was signed originally, you know, by the Giants and uh, traded to the Cardinals Mm -hmm. uh, after uh, a year uh, in the Army. Uh, I was signed with the Giants and played there, I think, in, what, 56. And then when I came, I went to the Army, and when I came out of the Army, they had Orlando Cepeda, and uh, they had Willie McCovey. And they also had another uh, first baseman, a right-handed hitter, uh, like uh, Cepeda. Mm-hmm. McCovey, a tough left-hander. Of course, he's in the Hall of Fame. Both of them, in fact, are in the Hall of Fame, McCovey uh, and Cepeda. And so when I came out, uh, they didn't need me. And I, for the, I, I remember I asked to be traders if I can't play here, why don't you get rid of me? And, of course, the general manager of the Giants didn't like that because players back then didn't ask to be traded. But I was fortunate, and he traded me to the Cardinals. Yeah. Short right field fence, uh, 303 down the line, about 320 to right center, and uh, then maybe 355. So uh, that was the best thing that ever happened to me in baseball, going to St. Louis. I didn't like it at the time because I knew that St. Louis was a city that uh, had a lot of prejudice in it. But uh, I ended up playing there, uh, I think, a total of nine years. Yeah. Now, there was a lot of prejudice in the city. The team, though, seemed, for the time, right, was was fairly integrated. Well, uh, it became. Uh, Bing Devine, the general manager, was a fine man. A very, very, very fine and fair man. 
and uh, bring, uh, let's see, uh, I had, they had one other black player before me. I think he was also a first baseman with, uh, a year or two before me. But uh, I got there, and Kurt Flood was uh, brought in. And then later on, Bob Gibson was brought in. And then later on, Lou Brock was brought in. Uh, so we, we had some pretty good players oh, yeah. uh, under, under Bing Devine. Wow. Great man, great man, helped me with a lot of things. Uh, when I had trouble there finding a home, uh, Bing Devine uh, helped me, and uh, Jack Buck, the broadcaster, helped me, uh, and uh, our manager uh, helped me. Uh, just a lot of people. And I've been very, very uh, uh, lucky in baseball to play with and for good people. And I ended up playing there, I think, a total of nine years. Nice park, short, short uh, right field fence. And uh, the people were good. Uh, I got into broadcasting there, in fact, my last few years. So St. Louis became uh, a great place uh, for me. Well, and that 1964 season was certainly memorable. That you, you mentioned Lou Brock. That was like the final peg, wasn't it, to that great team? Yeah, we had an excellent team with Gibson, myself, and uh, uh, Javier, Grote, shortstop, uh, Ken Boyer. Tim McCarver was a catcher. Was a, he was sort of a rookie catcher then. And when we got we we, we were fighting uh, Philadelphia. I think uh, we got Brock in the middle of the year, and we just uh, we 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 got close. And then the Phillies should have won it. I think they had 11 game uh, lead or something like that with a few 14 games left or something. And we caught them and beat them. And Brock uh, obviously flood uh, Gibson. Uh, they played a great part uh, in catching uh, the Phillies and winning in 1964. You know, another guy that was on the team you mentioned, Bob Gibson, one of the great pitchers of all time. And what I liked was his fighting spirit. Uh, I heard somewhere, and tell me if this is true or not, that you know he was a great teammate of yours and so forth. As soon as you were traded, boom, he'd be back throwing it hard and inside. Well, it wasn't all that hard inside, but it wasn't. It wasn't. It's probably about oh, 75, 80 miles an hour. <laughs> you told me that uh, when Bob would warm up, when pitchers would warm up, I'd go out and stand and watch him, watch the ball. So it would make sure that when I did pitch, uh, when I did hit against other pitchers, I kept my eye on the ball. And I'd go out and I'd watch the ball, Gibson throwing, and all of a sudden he, he stopped throwing, and the catcher and came halfway to me and said, Look, he says, one of these days you're going to get traded. And uh, you can't swing like that at me, or I'll hit you. <laughs> and, of course, I got traded to the Phillies, and the son of a gun, he did hit me. Of course, I hit him a little bit, not often. Nobody hit Gibson often. But uh, it, it was, we went out to dinner that night. Well, that's good. You can stay friends anyway. Cause- oh, yeah. Yeah. No, you, you, baseball isn't, you don't really make that many enemies in baseball. We'll be back with Bill White, a member of the St. Louis Cardinals Hall of Fame and author of Uppity, My Untold Story About the Games People Play, in just a moment. You're listening to Sports Rockin' Tours with Stephen Maggi. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. 
Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com. Welcome back to Sports Rock and Tours. You're listening to former Major League star, president of the National League, and broadcaster for the New York Yankees, Bill White. Yeah, and there were guys like Don Drysdale. It didn't matter who you were, right? That ball was going to come in on you. Well, he'd throw at you, but didn't make it. I was a left-handed hitter, and he threw spitballs, which were pitches down, and the ball goes down, and I a little ball hitter. You were the president of the National League. What an important job. And what was the thing that was most uh, you were most proud of in that role? Well, we we uh, kept San Francisco in San Francisco. That was probably one of the uh, biggest things we wanted. Uh, uh, we wanted stability in the league. Uh, the owner of San Francisco had already, I think, signed a contract to move the team to Florida. Uh, Florida had no teams uh, then in the big leagues, and uh, we said, wait a minute, you know, San Francisco... It's a pretty good town to play in. Uh, their attendance has suffered a bit because of the stadium. The stadium was out by uh, a lot of the wind blew in. It was cold. Attendance went down. But uh, I think the most uh, important thing is we kept them there. And later on, we put a couple of teams in Florida. But San Francisco State in San Francisco, they've done very well. They've done very well attendance-wise. And for the continuity of the game, I thought it was best to keep San Francisco in San Francisco. And National League uh, owners and the American League owners, I evidently went along with because uh, we, we kept them there. Uh, it's funny that the, the, Florida's having a problem, I guess, with uh, attendance now. Cause we, didn't take, we didn't take a team. We, we, when we said uh, San Francisco can't go to uh, Florida, mm-hmm. you should see some of the papers in, uh, in Florida and the writers and everybody. They got all over me. I hope those guys are going to the ball games now. I hope that at least their kids are going to games yeah. because it's, uh, it's had, they're having a little problem in Florida now. But uh, they can get through that because now they uh, share uh, revenue. And your career didn't end there. Then you got into you were broadcasting for the. You said you started actually in St. Louis, and then for the Yankees. All those years, uh, what was that like? Because all of a sudden you're going to maybe the most famous, legendary franchise of all baseball, and you worked for a while for George Steinbrenner. Well, prior to that, Mike Burke brought me there. Uh, Mike was a, really a good, great guy. He was vice president of CBS, I believe, and CBS bought the team, and they made Mike. They had Mike run it. And obviously, after a couple of years, uh, Steinbrenner bought it for $11 million. They're probably worth about 3 or $4 billion now. So it's a pretty good, uh, pretty good purchase. Unfortunately, uh, George uh, is no longer with us. He's a guy yeah. from Cleveland, Ohio. I was, as I mentioned, I'm from Warren, Ohio, 30, 40 miles south of Cleveland. And uh, the connection with Steinbrenner is that uh, uh, some of the guys I went to high school with uh, knew Steinbrenner. The other connection was that uh, uh, I played basketball with a little college in Ohio, just about 30 miles south of Cleveland, uh, at Hiram College. And one day we're playing a team from uh, Dayton, an Air Force team. I was dribbling down the uh, sideline, down the whatever, and, and there's an arm that grabs, grabs, goes out and grabs me, tries to grab me. Years later, when Steinbrenner bought the team, we had a... A, a luncheon in New York, and I 
particularly didn't like the way Stan Steinbrenner uh, handled Mike Burke. Mike finally sold his mm-hmm. shares and left uh, because he couldn't get along with Steinbrenner. George was hard to play or work oh, for. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, Phil Rizzuto and I gave a speech. And I was, as I was walking out, there is the former coach of the air base team <laughs> at Dayton there. Now, I didn't know who, I didn't remember him, you know, I didn't know him. But, so as I was walking back by him, and I always spoke to him, but never took a lot of time because I really liked Mike Burke. So he, he stopped me, he says, hey, and I said, hi. He says, you don't know who I am now? I said, no. And I said, well, I'm the guy that tried to pull you out of bounds. <laughs> and, I don't know if we're going to be on here. I said, you were the SOB. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we got along for a while. You know, we got along. George didn't like the way I broadcast because I wasn't pro-Yankee. But uh, he'd end up asking me a lot of questions about, you know, my experiences in baseball, about managers (laughs) (laughs) and other things that he wanted to do. So we had a good experience. We were were okay together, but he didn't. uh, He never liked the way I broadcast. That's funny because I, I think it's really uh, great to hear somebody that can, you know. Of course, it's always from the home team's perspective because you're you're announcing all their games. But at the same time, you don't want to sound like you're actually rooting for somebody because it's uh, I don't know. There's certain well, professionality about that. Would you ever hear Rizzuto do a broadcast? Well, and that's what I was thinking too. Yeah, so it was a good Some offset, people right? Like that. Yankee fans <laughs> like that. Yankee fans like that, and I think we did well together. But Phil loved the Yankees so much, and I sort of tried to be neutral. And Frank Messer obviously worked with us. Greg probably better than both of us put together, Rizzuto and I. Uh, but uh, Frank worked with us, and uh, I think we had a different crew. And we had a lot of people listening because we're the Yankees, and I think some of the people in the Midwest could get our games. How was Phil to work with? I mean, was he was he a lot of fun? He always sounded like he enjoyed himself out there. Well, he did. He didn't like to work too many innings, but uh, he, he would leave early. Yeah, you did stuff whatever. for CBS, right? I mean, it was great. I, I remember yeah. listening to you. You did the national broadcast. Yeah, we did some of those. I was lucky because the uh, our bosses there allowed me to go out and, and do those games and sometimes miss Yankee games. So uh, baseball was, uh, somebody said, baseball has been good to me. <laughs> yeah, it really had. Well, last thing then, you know, broadcaster, great player, and a... Uh, I was a good player, not a great player, but I was a good player. I was consistent, <laughs> consistently good. Well, I remember you had at least three years where you were hitting 300, a significant amount of RBIs and home runs. I remember I had your baseball card. I remember that. Distinctly. Well, that was because of playing mostly in St. Louis over that little short wall. But no, I was I, I was a consistent. I think that the consistency, I think, was what is good. I could catch it a little bit, and I could run a little bit, and I could field it a little bit, and I could hit it a little bit. And uh, just lucky to play with guys like uh, Musial and Boyer and Willie Mays and guys like that, and to compete with the McCovey and a Cepeda who ran me out of. San Francisco, so that that makes you play a little better. <laughs> well, it was a great era. Now, it's my last question: As you uh, were the president of the National League and so forth, when you watch what's happening today, do you think baseball's doing enough to create opportunities? I mean, you were one of the few people, people of color, that had a front office high position. I, I remember when Frank Robinson was was hired as a manager was a big deal, and it always seemed to me like, well, this seems ridiculous considering all these great players and people that have been in there. You know, why was that so hard? I guess that's a long way to ask you. Do you think baseball's now now doing the right things, or do you think they're still insufficient in this? 
What, in managing? Well, I think we have a lot of Hispanic managers, and I, and, and I believe they... I, I really don't follow... I haven't followed baseball since I left it, quite honestly. Really? No, I... Uh, you know, I, I played to make a living, made a good living, and uh, played for, I don't know how many years, nine, but maybe 13 years, and broadcast it for 18 years and ran it for five, and that was enough. And I, I <laughs> used to go to Philly games, uh, opening day, and... Uh, because uh, I played a couple of years with the Phillies. Yeah. Uh, I snapped my tendon and didn't do well. I played had one in the first year. It was a good year, and then I couldn't play anymore, but they kept me in and sent me back to St. Louis because the Cardinals wanted me to manage, and I didn't want to go to minor leagues learn how to manage. They wanted me to go down to manage and come uh, go down to minors and manage a year and then come up to the biggies, and I, I didn't want to do that. Do you, do you watch any sports anymore, or is it just something that, eh, did, did, done that? I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. Uh, I've never been to see the uh, Eagles play. I'm a Browns fan. I remember what it was 1957. They played in the Browns one. I always remember that. I think that's the year. So I sort of kid the Philly, the, uh, Philly fans because I think uh, they beat the, uh, the not the Philly fans, the Eagles fans. But I, I do watch football every once in a while. All right. Because Warren, Ohio is a big football town. You know, Ohio is big football. And, oh, yeah. Uh, we got, most of our kids go to Ohio State. I wasn't good enough, so I had to go to a little school. <laughs> I had maybe three or 400 people, and I was hired. We played football there for a year. You were good in baseball. There's no question. Hey, thanks so much for talking with us. Really appreciate no it, Bill. Problem. Thank right. you. Thank you. Right on. Thanks, Bill. Make sure to read White's autobiography, Uppity, My Untold Story About the Games People Play. Go to the Vegas Never Sleeps website and check out the Sports Rockin' Tours page. You can hear bonus content there from this conversation, as well as a number of other great sports stories. Don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Manchin. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com.